Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Crime is spiking in Europe. Wait, let me take that again. The crime is spiking in Europe. I was like, well, I've clearly been spiked. Sarah had been on a night out with friends. They called an ambulance when she became unwell, one of several young women who now thinks they've been spiked with an injection. That was ITV, and young women, sometimes men, have been discovering small pinpricks and then feeling woozy or worse. And it's not just an English phenomenon. France has seen a recent uptick in needle spiking. France 24 reporting one of their headlines is fear on the dance floor as disco needle attacks baffle France. In this report, we hear from a young woman who was victimized at a live performance. Lena started to vomit and sought first aid. That's when panic erupted within the audience. Yes, panic at the disco. Could be as deadly as an arcade fire. But in that case, the French authorities did detain a 20-year-old man who didn't have needles on him, but still, he was arrested. It is, as far as I could tell, the first such arrest in any of these stories. There was a spate of them last year in England. Now they're being reported out of France, and they never seem to include a perpetrator. Here, the Washington Post today reports of the needle fear rise in Europe. Quote, French police have received more than 300 complaints of injections in various regions since the end of March, but have not made arrests. So they're 0 for 300. They go on to quote, Marion Pullman, the nightmare of the Dutch city of Groningen, whose council work includes preventing sexual harassment, told the Post that his team has set up an online helpline for residents to report such incidents. While Dutch media outlets have reported a handful of possible cases in the country, he said it was hard for medics to confirm reports in his city, including whether needles were involved. Again, no one caught, so says the nightmare. Nightmare, nightmare. You know what? I'm not going to sing in this case. We'll just go on. Post continues. Don Dines, founder of the nonprofit Stamp Out Spiking, which works to combat drink spiking in Britain, told the Post that needle spiking remains minuscule compared to drink contamination, but the effects can be similar. She added, possible motives could include assault, rape, human trafficking, or even personal vendettas. First of all, I'd use the even before the human trafficking. That's what we're building up to, human trafficking. We don't know who's doing it. We don't really know to what extent it's happening or why it's happening, but maybe it's about human trafficking. Okay, sure, why not? Can't say it's not. It is a very weird story, and drink spiking is certainly a problem, being roofied or slipping someone a mickey, as the kids say. But drink spiking and needle spiking are quite different things. And not one of the current needle spiking cases includes proof that anyone was actually drugged. But still, a few dozen mysterious cases in Europe are being reported here, and not just in the reports I played. I saw this story in The Post, on NPR, in the AP, also on CBS. In the United Kingdom, police are investigating dozens of reports of people who fear they've been stuck by needles in drugging attempts. Haley Ott has more from Nottingham, England. They told the story of the same victim in the original ITV report I played for you. The formula is that novelty plus fear plus, let's be honest, attractive victims equal international attention. 
Gladly, this behavior has not yet occurred or not yet been perceived to have occurred in the U.S., but it probably will. On the one hand, I'm thinking, this is the U.S. Our maniacs shoot people. Thank you very much. Enough with these needles. On the other hand, we do hate being out-innovated, even in the burgeoning and possibly somewhat apocryphal field of surreptitious needle attacks in nightclubs. On the show today, do you recall that lonely summer day we were together and things got in our way? It doesn't really matter, except that's a song by Journey, a San Francisco band, and San Franciscans are on a journey to ban Chase Boudin from holding office. Okay, it's not really a ban, but I went for total pun symmetry about the recall of the San Francisco mayor. And yes, I sacrificed accuracy, and maybe you could argue my soul. But first, in the wake of the Uvalde, Texas shootings, I talked to a person eminently qualified to speak on these issues in the context of Texas politics. He is Scott Braddock. He is the author of the Quorum Report newsletter. He also hosts the Texas Take podcast, and he joins us up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. The more we learn about the tragedy in Uvalde, the more confusing it is to break through this confusion is one of the sharpest voices uh, covering politics in the state of Texas. He's Scott Braddock. He's been on the show before. He's the editor of the Quorum Report newsletter and host of the Texas Take podcast. Scott, welcome back. Always great to be with you, Mike. So 78 minutes inside that room while Mm. uh, police assembled outside. What more are we learning about that? And from, the, from where I sit in New York, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Worse and worse. And I don't know about you. I've covered you know, many of these tragedies over the last two decades in Texas, whether it be uh, hurricanes, wildfires, whatever. There's always something trying to kill you in Texas. Uh, but as this story has unfolded, I've never seen a situation where day after day, Every 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, there's some piece of information that comes out that completely contradicts what we thought we knew about it before. I mean, there's always new information that comes out about these situations. Uh, But, for example, we were told originally that there was a school resource officer who confronted the gunman who, as he was going into the school and turned out to not be true. Uh, And then we were told that a teacher left a door open, unlocked, and the gunman was able to get in that way, and that turned out to not be true. We were also told by the governor of Texas that one reason that it could have been so much worse. And I was still trying to wrap my mind around this, Mike. When you were the governor, when you go to this community that's just been through this, and one of the first things out of your mouth is, oh, it could have been so much worse. Maybe not. that's not the thing that you should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said it could have been worse because uh, you did have law enforcement uh, do what they do and go in as quickly as they could and run toward the gunfire to try to save these kids. And then we found out 
as you pointed out in the opening here, that was not true either. The uh, officers were outside of the classroom, did not go in uh, for about an hour as kids were inside calling 911 asking for help. We know that there was an 11-year-old girl uh, who uh, actually was one of the survivors told CNN that what she did to survive was take some of the blood from her friend's body and smear it on her body so that the gunman would think that she was dead. She was playing possum uh, and she was able to you know, figure that out you know, lickety split. Uh, and in the meantime, leadership seems to be the one that are the ones that are paralyzed. Yeah, you're right about the cascade of misinformation. So I can excuse, actually, I can't, but I could understand you get it wrong initially, but then everything from that point on is a cleanup and a walk back. But that is sure. not what's going on here. Uh -uh. For instance, that teacher and the door, how do we even find out about that? The truth? Well, the truth was that the, the you know the teacher lawyered up. Uh, you know they were uh, you know under the gun legally uh, because they may have done something to put the kids at risk, and so then the uh, you know the official story uh, was shifted uh, in that moment. But it was only because you know the teacher was ready to fight back in case they were implicated. Exactly, and when Scott to me when Greg Abbott. Uh, talks about they ran towards the violence, they ran towards the danger. That's a cliche, and we fall back on cliches. They're not that useful because they're familiar and not insightful, but usually they're at least true. And so mm -hmm. it seemed to be, I don't even know if it was active deception, just a laziness and lack of concern for actually figuring out what happened. Hey, we could say these cliches, the cliches have served us in the past mm -hmm. if what our agenda is not to pass laws. And at least in so many instances in this case it seems that that playbook is not really working for the governor it's not and if i can let me uh play for you and your audience what governor abbott said about uh gun violence in texas four years ago you mentioned cliches this was four years ago after what at that time was the worst school shooting in texas history that was the shooting uh at santa fe uh which is just south of houston we need to do more than just pray for the victims and their families it's time in Texas that we take action to step up and make sure this tragedy is never repeated ever again in the history of the state of Texas. Now, in the four years since, Governor Abbott's been the governor every single day, and he's had a couple legislative sessions now. And two weeks ago, the day after the shooting in Uvalde, he bragged about a, you know, a raft of legislation that was passed the next year in 2019. And folks were sort of scratching their head around here, Mike, saying, well, he's talking about these things that passed, but they obviously didn't do anything to prevent the one that happened a couple of weeks ago. My colleague, uh, Jeremy Wallace, who's my co-host on the Texas Take podcast, uh, he's at the Houston Chronicle, he had compared it to what leadership around here does on property taxes, which is they talk about, you know, in the last two, four, six years, all these sweeping reforms have been made to the property tax system. But every single year, people get their property tax bill and it's it's higher every single yeah. time. And so people wonder, is this just government by gimmick? And at what point does that catch up to the leadership? Because if we could play a raft of quotes of the governor saying essentially the things that rational people would want him to say, but you could also play counter quotes by the governor from the same period. In fact, at certain points, he was, wasn't this right? He was talking to the NRA as he was uh, issuing some sort of platitudes to the victims in Uvalde. So he's totally contradictory. But what do we read from it? I mean, you could maybe say he's a politician who's giving himself maximum wiggle room. Yeah. But what do we make of the fact that he says almost everything and its opposite on this issue? 
On the point that you're speaking about, uh, on the Friday that Governor Abbott was supposed to be speaking at the National Rifle Association Convention in Houston, and of course, the NRA has a proud tradition of showing up with their convention right after school, you know, school shootings going all the way back 23 years ago. And when he was asked about uh, whether he was still going to speak uh, at the NRA, he was asked about it uh, two days prior to that. He said he was living moment to moment. It's my suspicion that he and the lieutenant governor were uh, doing quick flash polling of the state to figure out whether they ought to be there. Um, But the fact is that the governor, and there's an old saying in Texas politics, probably in other places too, that's the way George Bush would say it. We got a saying in Texas, y'all probably uh, have a version. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there is, there is, uh, there's no room for, uh, you know, explaining something uh, by coincidence when you can easily attribute it to conspiracy. Uh, and on the Friday that Abbott was going to speak, um, he went down to Uvalde instead. He he did offer videotaped uh, comments for the NRA, and the conspiracy theory was sort of that he planned it to happen at the exactly the same time. His videotaped uh, comments played at about 3 p.m., And that's the exact same time he held a press conference in Uvalde where he was talking about uh, state resources being there for victims and for their families, that the state would help pay for things like uh, funerals and uh, travel costs if there was anything like that, and uh, things that the state should do. Uh, But at that uh, uh, press conference, you had uh, a state senator uh, who represents Uvalde, Roland Gutierrez, who's from San Antonio. Uh, He showed up and interrupted the news conference. There was a pattern of this. Beto O'Rourke interrupted Abbott, and then Roland Gutierrez interrupted Abbott. I think a lot of that really rattled the governor, kind of has helped to put him on the back foot, really. Uh, And Senator Gutierrez said, look, you could exercise your power to call a special session of the Texas legislature to try to address this. As things stand right now, it doesn't look like the governor wants to do that at all. I can talk more about that if you like, but uh, the fact is that the kids are going to go back to school this fall and for the entire next school year with nothing being different, uh, you know, in Texas when it comes to our laws on guns and nothing even different on, you know, the laws when it comes to uh, mental health and school security, which those are the things the Republicans say that they favor making some changes to. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about Beto O'Rourke. When he ran for president, he was very defiantly anti-gun, didn't help him in the presidential run. Now that gets hung around his neck a little bit like a millstone before this. Oh, it looks like there's an issue that is absolutely playing to what he's always been saying. So maybe people would interpret it. This is a good development for Beto. But I do wonder if he wouldn't have been better off by emphasizing things like they lied to us and there was an incompetent police response and the governor is covering that up rather than we want to take your guns. What do you think? He's been doing all of that, uh, you know. To your point, in the presidential race, of course, the uh, the quote that was heard around the country, around the world, was Beto saying, uh, "You know, hell yes, we will take your AR-15, your AK-47." I have been asking myself this question: If you played that audio for Texans now, would it hit their ear a little differently after what just mm-hmm. happened in Uvalde? I think that's very. It was going to be part of the uh, Abbott campaign game plan to probably play that clip on television about five million times before November. Yeah, hell yes, we will take your guns. Um, I don't think they're going to do that now. I think that the governor, uh, in reading the room, and he, he and his uh, his political team, his, uh, his New Hampshire-based consultant, Dave Carney, 
They've pulled back on a lot of that, at least for right now. They're not talking about that stuff. I think Abbott's approach uh, to Beto is to try to, you know, just ignore him and try to focus on being, you know, the guy who's in charge right now, making decisions as far as uh, what happens in Austin with special legislative committees, no special session or anything like that. Uh, but with Beto, I think that he's got, um, and I don't know if it's a strategy. It's just kind of the way he operates. He's, I've compared him to Trump a lot, which is uh, maybe uh, out of left field, but. He's sort of a disruptor. All of the Republican uh, political professionals who were telling me that uh, Beto should not have interrupted Greg Abbott during his news conference the other day, all mm -hmm. of that, because they were making the argument that that's just not the way you do it. We need people who are more statesmanlike. That's not appropriate. All of them were the same people who were you know, just fine with the grab them by the blank guy, yeah, uh, and yeah. the, the disruptor guy, the guy who, and, and I've asked this question. If Trump was running as the Democrat for governor of Texas right now, how would he be behaving? I don't know, which is kind of the point. Beto's just sort of out there doing things, and he's on the attack. He was, uh, you know, holding these town halls around the state. He did, uh, you know, take Abbott on directly uh, at that news conference, um, and he was rallying outside the NRA. And, and, and look, Democrats, if they're going to be any kind of successful in Texas— They've got to change up the playbook. And I don't, you know, I'm not here to help them figure out what it's supposed to be. Uh, but I do know uh, that the way they've been doing it has not worked in the past. And I, and I would say, look, this is a state where it's not even a guarantee that the Republican nominee for governor, Greg Abbott, is going to even debate Beto O'Rourke. He doesn't have to do mm -hmm. that. Governor Perry didn't debate his uh, Democratic uh, opponents going back to 2010. Uh, Abbott has debated all of his so far. But my point is that it, that moment where Beto and Abbott faced off at that news conference, that might be their only face-to-face -face meeting during this entire campaign. Assess the reactions and comportment and strategy of your two U.S. senators, John Cornyn and Ted Cruz. Well, Senator Cruz, uh, R. Ted Cruz, uh, is sticking to uh, his usual playbook. Cruz was railing about uh, the left and the media trying to take all of our guns. And he was saying that, uh, look, it, it's the same thing that those folks wanted to do uh, before the shooting is the same thing they want to do after the shooting, which is take your guns. I have given. Uh, and so there's, I don't even know if there's that much to say about uh, Senator Cruz. He's just uh, it's SOP from him. With Senator Cornyn, I've uh, taken some heat from Democrats around here because I've called him the adult in the room. At least, as, as far as Republican leadership in Texas, he'd be the elder statesman. Uh, and I think he's taking Joe, that approach. Joe Biden called him rational, right? Trying to right. get him on board with crafting legislation. Chris Murphy, at least at this point, mm -hmm. you know, refers to him as a partner in crafting right. some legislation that could do something. Yeah, Sure. And he and Murphy, Cornyn and Murphy teamed up after the uh, shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, uh, and they worked uh, on a, a small narrow piece of legislation, although significant. I mean, ask Chris Murphy if it was a nothing bill. He would tell you it was a significant bill. Uh, right. Put millions of background checks into the background uh, check system because of uh, some problems uh, with reporting from the Air Force and all of that, the fix nicks legislation. It has been uh, the practice of Senator Cornyn to take a look at exactly what happened in these situations and then try to craft legislation that would address specifically what happened. Um, part of the problem with this shooting is that, as we were talking about earlier, we still don't even know exactly what happened, uh, and there does need to be more investigation about it because we keep getting all this conflicting information. Uh, but look, uh, Cornyn, with the blessing of the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, is talking with Democrats, uh, working to try to craft some kind of piece of legislation. Uh, Cornyn said that, hey, it would be an embarrassment if the Senate does not act uh, in this situation. Um, and you may have seen uh, in the Dallas Morning News over the weekend, 
uh, some major Republican donors uh, took out a full-page ad saying that we support Senator Cornyn in his efforts to, uh, you know, talk with Democrats to work on uh, legislation uh, reforming gun laws in in this uh, in this country, uh, and that's a big. Uh, you know, I think it's a big statement. You, you haven't seen that previously, and you've seen all of this talk, Mike, that this shooting uh, has created an environment that quote feels different. Chris Murphy's one yeah. of the people who said that. Other people have said this feels different. I've been trying to figure out why it feels any different, and I and I'm not totally convinced that it is different. Um, to me, all of these shootings are horrific, and and. I think, you know, things need to be changed. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when it comes to state government, folks might as well just pray because that's going to be more effective than whatever state government would do. Uh, it looks like the federal government might be in position to do something now. Um, and look, Republicans might be wise at the national level to go on and give Biden a win on uh, guns so they can go back to talking about what they really want to talk about, which is the economy, which is a concern for everybody. Right. It, I mean, the obvious reason why it feels different is that it's children and Sutherland Springs is still the most deadly shooting in Texas history, as you know, and it was stopped or at least partially stopped by a former NRA instructor with an right. AR-15, thus complicating perhaps the narrative of availability of guns. But in this one, it does seem to me not just the horror of the children getting killed, mm -hmm. The fact that the 18-year-old was issued the gun, and that is such an easy quote-unquote fix. And Florida, right. which doesn't have such different politics, I mean, in terms of the electorate, and if you look at if they're, how their state has been voting, Florida enacted that ban. I don't know if Texas is going to be able to rouse itself to do that. Yeah, I don't know. The uh, I would I would say uh, for Florida, they're an actual swing state, and we're a rumored swing state. Yeah, they, I know. They're, they're, <laughs> right, I mean, they're, right. they're at, at the statewide level. You do, have, and it's interesting that Rick uh, Scott was able to pass that, as you say, and then the consequence for him from the gun guys was really nothing. I mean, he was the governor, and now he's in the Senate, right? And, now he's in the Senate. and right, and now and, he's in and, charge and, of the legislative direction of the of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, if you look at what the Texas Senate Democratic Caucus, the you know the senators are in the state. Senate here are asking for. It is not, um, you know, some gun grabbing uh, agenda that they've asked for. They sent a letter uh, to Governor Abbott uh, the week of the shooting, um, and they asked for the following things. You tell me if this isn't just the bare minimum of policy prescriptions. They asked for raising the age to buying, you know, for buying a firearm to 21. As, as you mentioned, might be something mm -hmm. uh, that would make sense. Uh, requiring universal background checks for all firearm sales, implementing red flag laws, a cooling off period for purchasing a firearm, and regulating uh, high capacity magazines. Now, all that's going to get huge pushback from the NRA. Uh, but the fact is that uh, we're in a position now uh, where, look, most of the Republican legislators, they're not going to pay any price. The primary is over. If they wanted to go on and do this in a special session, they're all safe uh, in their general elections. And how could it hurt Governor Abbott? I mean, look, I think you have to handicap it for the Republicans statewide in Texas. Uh, bottom line, uh, he is in all likelihood probably going to win. I don't want somebody coming back and you know replaying the show later and say, oh, Braddock said Beto had a chance. Well, it, you know, it's more than zero. But yeah. the fact is that in all likelihood, he will pay no price uh, you know, for going forward with some kind of reform here including raising the age of a firearm, you know, for buying a firearm. This is the same legislature that after the shooting in Santa Fe, that, that was in 2018, in 2019, this legislature did raise the age for buying cigarettes. All right. And it had been, it had been, uh, what, uh, about a century 
since it had been uh, you know raised. Uh, and so it, this is no slippery slope. And you, you know what they did uh, in that uh, in that bill to raise the age on tobacco use? They put an exception in because we keep hearing, oh, what about um, uh, you know eighteen is good enough for our kids to go into the military, right? You keep right. hearing that out of Washington. Yeah. In the bill to raise the age for tobacco, there's an exception. If you if you if sign up for military service, you can buy cigarettes. So look, <laughs> there are ways to craft the legislation that address these concerns or these arguments, uh, and I think it's perfectly analogous for for a kid who's 18. If they want to uh, walk around with a long gun, hey, have them yeah. sign up for the military. They'll get the training they need. They'll make sure they're doing it safely and all of that. In the meantime, we do have a commonality in these shootings. As so many of the shooters were under 21. And in Texas, I think you'd get a lot of Republicans to agree that a lot of kids when they're 18, they're just not quite right yet. Yeah. Scott Braddock is the editor of the newsletter, The Quorum Report. He is the host of the Texas Take podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Have you heard about the San Francisco DA who voters are fed up with? Yes, you do recall? Well, so will they, or at least get their chance to. Tonight, Chase Boudin came in in 2020 talking of reform and over-incarceration. He got slammed with a pandemic, very low clearance rates, and smash-and-grab robbery rings that sunk him lower in the public's esteem with each Gucci bag scooped up and rushed to a car waiting outside the store. In a recent interview with the San Francisco Chronicle's Fifth Emission podcast, Boudin defends himself by noting that murder is up everywhere, he can't prosecute guys who the police don't catch, and that the pandemic broke down the social order. He played the blame game like a Hall of Famer, See if you could pick up on the forces he's subtly nodding at. Republican stock donations, no Republican playbook. As Republicans. Republican allies, they're Republican billionaires. San Francisco is 7% Republican, 7. So even if that powerful 7% block mobilizes against him, he'll be safe if most of the Democrats don't want him gone, but polls show that most Democrats want him gone too. A couple of progressive prosecutors have survived election or recall, but Boudin might be the first to go. In his interview, I thought he acquitted himself pretty well, actually. I was quite skeptical of his tenure, but I thought he did a good job, at least to me, raising some good points about the downsides of a recall, including some Republican blame game, of course, but here's how he put it. Earlier today, I was in uh, North Beach and somebody said they were supporting the recall. And I said, I'd love to hear why. What, what is it that you think is going to change? What policies has the recall suggested they're going to advance if they prevail? And he, he didn't have an answer. Um, and in fact, that's how that conversation usually goes, because the folks who've spent now about $7 million, largely Republican stock donations to the recall, have not advanced a single policy platform, a candidate, or a vision for how to make San Francisco safer. Instead, they've spent their money, their time, used their soapbox that they've purchased to attack me and my work w without in any way suggesting what could be done to improve the very serious challenges that we face as a city. It's scapegoating. In politics, there is a phrase, you can't beat something with nothing. But that's what the recall effort, every recall effort, hopes to do. 
So I was contemplating that in general as I was listening to another interview this conducted on the BBC in advance of the recall vote that Boris Johnson recently survived, a vote of confidence or no confidence within the Tory party. And there on the BBC, conservative MP Matt Warman made a similar point about beating something with nothing. It eloquently articulates the, the case against, on, on one level, uh, the, the Prime Minister. What it doesn't do is present any kind of way forward whatsoever. Um, it, it, it's, to do it, it's Well, I, I, I don't know, but I, I think the responsible thing for any political party, but certainly for the party of government, cannot be to say, we're going to throw everything up in the air and see where it lands. We know, as ever, Boris landed on his feet. But the same argument, they have critiques, but they don't have plans, struck me as valid in one instance, not terribly persuasive in another. The more I thought about the argument that Boudin was putting forward, the more that line of reasoning just seems like a thing that someone facing a recall should always say. Now, there are differences in a no-confidence vote and a recall. There are certainly differences in the two systems, but both are a subset of replacing something with nothing. Now, in neither case do I get a vote. I can understand why a conservative would vote to retain or reject Boris, and since I never will become a British conservative, I leave them to that. But I could become a San Francisco voter if someone gives me, I don't know, $18 million for a two-bedroom apartment. It's funny. I make that joke. I'm in Brooklyn. It's, it's as expensive. But anyway, I understand San Francisco voters, I guess, as my fellow Americans, and I know some of them personally. I understand them a little bit better than British Tories. And I understand why they just made jettison Boudin. It's not scapegoating exactly. It's that he came in promising revolutionary change, and then revolutionary change occurred, and people did not like it. Boudin could argue, but that wasn't my change. That isn't really revolutionary, and certain crimes aren't even up. But it is an ironclad rule of not just politics, but of human perception that massive change is going to be attributed to the loudest change agent around, someone who wanted to be known as such. It's true. It's true. If Boudin feels that many of the arguments against him are unfair, many of the votes against him are uninformed, it is true that many of the votes against him will not be perfectly grounded in facts. Many voters will be attributing phenomena to him that he's not responsible for. Yeah, he's the one politician in history for whom that's true. And that's why a good politician practices good politics, not just to advance his or her agenda, but because practicing good politics allows you to be the captain who weathers the storm. Scapegoating and Republicans and voter perception aside, Boudin put himself in the position to act as the weather vane or the touchstone, or one way to look at it, the human referendum. And perhaps after tonight, he will be able to recall that if he can't make change, and if he can't make a case for more allowance, well, then you probably can't make it through a recall. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is this program's senior producer. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com. Michelle Pesca is COO of The Gist. They never even got the requisite number of signatures on the petitions for the recall. She survives. She stays. 
The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.